an epic matchup between your two favorite teams, and you're at the game getting the most from what it means to be here with American Express. You breeze through the card member entrance, stop by the lounge. Now it's almost tip-off, and everyone's already on their feet. This is going to be good. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your live sports experience at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Eligible American Express card required. Benefits vary by card and by venue. Terms apply. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby and modern-day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. There's plenty to celebrate in March, and ex- Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. Bring spring color inside this season with Bear Premium Plus paint starting at just $28.98 a gallon at the Home Depot. Add a pop of blue to your kitchen with the Bear exclusive color Arrowhead Lake or a splash of Amazon Jungle to your living room. Bring a cool breeze to your bathroom with sea glass or accent your bedroom with sunrise-inspired colors like coral cloud and dark crimson. Let your creativity bloom this spring with Bare Premium Plus paint starting at just $28.98 a gallon at The Home Depot. How doers get more done. What's up, Open Floor Globe? This is Ben Galver with The Washington Post. I am joined on the other line by Michael the Pod Pina, who is everywhere covering these NBA playoffs on the internet. Be sure to check out his great work. We're going to discuss a little bit of it later in the episode. But Michael, we've got to start with a major, shocking, stunning development in the NBA coaching world. Hall of Fame point guard Steve Nash, a two-time MVP, has been hired by the Brooklyn Nets to be their next coach. Obviously, his big task is going to be to convince Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving to buy into that organization, to try to lift it to championship heights, to try to put aside all the melodrama and the years of rumors and recommit to basketball. It's a fascinating hire, and I couldn't help but conclude, Michael, that you might actually wind up being one of the biggest winners out of all of this for whatever reason, you've actually cared about the Nets a lot over the last five years, and now you have what I would consider to be one of the most uh, quotable coaches in the league, don't you think? No, from that perspective, yeah, I win. Me alone, I am the winner, um, and I'm happy about that. Uh, from yeah, From a media perspective, this is just a joyous, celebratory move by the Brooklyn Nets. So maybe uh, what I, you should do is write a winners and lo- losers column for GQ <laughs> where like the winner is like 35 ventures because Katie gets his coach. And then the winner is Michael Pina because now you have somebody to welcome to your book club. What do you think? Exactly. No, that's 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 perfect. That's very ideal for me. Um, I, I mean, I don't know about you. This completely stunned me, completely caught me off guard. I was sitting at my desk, got an email from Brooklyn Nets PR, and I just honestly expected it to be like, the nets because i get a lot of these emails from the nets yeah, and they're, they're like, like we're donating 35 <laughs> turkeys to a local you know shelter like that's what you thought it would be 
exact. That's literally what I thought it was. And I saw Steve Nash's Steve Nash's name. Didn't even really think anything of it. As I read that he was named head coach, I thought that the email was a mistake. Then I went on Twitter, saw that Woj tweeted it, saw that some other people had tweeted it and reported it. Um, it is still pretty stunning to me. Just. Not saying that Steve Nash can't make it work because there are instances of first year point guard head coaches coming in. Um, you know, the number one comparison that everyone's making is Steve Kerr, I think. Um, and so he could have success for sure. But I think that it's just, it, it's surprising because the stakes are just so high in Brooklyn. And to give the keys to someone, even someone as reputable and as accomplished, in the world of basketball, Steve Nash, it's still very surprising. It absolutely is. Um, I want to get back to the curse stuff uh, and that part of it in a minute because, you know, Steve Nash, I think his best preparation for this job was actually working as basically a consultant or a player development mm-hmm. coach on and off with the Warriors under Steve Kerr. And, and he forged a relationship with Kevin Durant in that role. So it's, you know, very important. And I'm sure that played a major, major role in him getting hired. But we've got this question from Julia in Brooklyn, Michael, and I just I think that she captures a lot of what you're saying, and, and she also refers to us by our nickname. So she says, hi, Bubble Ben and Mike the Pod. I love the show, longtime listener, fellow Brooklyn resident, Michael. I woke up this morning looking forward to another great day of games, and as I check the NBA news, I see that my Brooklyn Nets have hired Steve Nash as the head coach. I thought, huh, what a coincidence. There must be some great assistant coach in the league named Steve Nash that they've poached from a team (laughs) to lead their title contenders next season. Much to my surprise, nope, it's the Steve Nash. And last I checked, he's never coached before. I've just about had it with my team. The Kyrie experience has been like having multiple root canals while totally sober. I miss Kenny Atkinson and I miss rooting for a likable team. Please tell me that this was a good hire. Give me some good news. I feel like I'm taking crazy pills and need a little reprieve. So... Dr. Pina, Julia is asking for your diagnosis uh, and some help here, clearly. Um, first of all, uh, yeah, the, the root canal part, well, well, sober, no medication, does not sound like fun at all. But hey, what do you think, Michael? I mean, do you have any good news for her? Can you buy into the positive spin or are you skeptical? Wow, that email went in a direction I was not expecting, to be perfectly honest with you. Uh, no, Julia I, <laughs> kept it real, all right? I mean, she's not messing around. You know, she's a Brooklyn no, she's resident. She, she's a cynical New York City diehard. You know, she's out there wanting to have Steve Nash prove himself to her. Yeah, no, I respect that opinion. Um, I mean, look, again, giving the keys to someone who has literally no head coaching experience when you're, I mean, he's walking into championship expectations in a way that, I mean, it's fair to say Steve Kerr wasn't really walking into those expectations when he became head coach in 2014-15 for the 2014-15 season with Golden State. This is completely different. There's a lot of pressure here. Um, I mean, at the end of the day, this is what Kevin Durant wants, right? So, keeping like the name of the game and we've talked about this so many times in speculating about who would be the head coach of the Brooklyn Nets the name of the game is to keep your superstars happy right so if KD's happy if Kyrie signed off on this and is pumped to play for Steve Nash and they can all make that work then there's reason for for excitement um 
and everything else kind of doesn't even matter. Like if KD was not happy with the hire, you could. If KD did not want to play for Greg Popovich, and they and they and they hired Greg Popovich, then the NBA that we live in right now is a world where that doesn't even really register. So the fact that KD is reportedly behind this and p- reportedly for it, and he has a relationship with Nash, that's really like all this that matters at the end of the day. That's like the underlining fundamental point and reason for this hire. Yeah, so I want to just say this, Julia, focus on the temperament and the personalities rather than the experience. Look, you already kind of made your bed when you decided to go after Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving. Now, those two superstars did not fit at all with what Kenny Atkinson was trying to build. They did not really fit that well with the young core that was already existing, right? It was no surprise when those guys were out that all of a sudden some of the younger guys step up and play well. They're more comfortable they're more empowered when uh, Kyrie's on the court. You know, it didn't look quite as right. It mm-hmm. was more disjointed. So once you made the decision as an organization to go get those superstar level players, you're going to have to find a coach they're comfortable with. And look, these are caricatures, right? But there's truth be- behind them. Kenny Atkinson basically just chews glass and wants to run wind sprints at 7 a.m. in the morning, right? <laughs> Kevin Durant wants to sit around on Twitter all afternoon arguing about basketball, and Kyrie sure. Irving wants to watch YouTube videos about who knows what conspiracy. There was never any way to bridge that gap. That gap was wider than the Atlantic Ocean, which actually isn't that wide, wider than the Pacific Ocean. It was never going to happen. So once you decided, okay, we're casting our lot with these superstars, you have to find a guy they like. The one thing that we could say about Steve Nash is he generally shares a philosophy about the sport. It should be free-flowing. It should be very creative. It should be instinctive. It shouldn't be overly programmed. Um, You know, it should be, uh, if possible, up-tempo, pushing the ball. And in general, that should align with two very pure hoopers, as they like to self-identify, Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving. Now, here's the trick. It was seven seconds or less, not seven dribbles or more. And what I'm concerned about with Kyrie Irving and KD is they do like to play a lot of that ISO game. And there's going to be some philosophical tension there where Steve Nash is not going to just want to watch and pound the ball to KD or want to watch and, and slow the game down and let Kyrie Irving dribble the ball 25 times in the half court. So that that's something to watch in terms of can they get on the same page. But ultimately, the way to look at this hire is they went from... I don't want to call him player unfriendly, but certainly old school, traditional, rigid Kenny Atkinson to one of the, you know, stereotypically most player friendly coaches you could ever possible possibly imagine, right? If you put a hundred candidates lined up on a spectrum, Michael, from most player friendly to least player friendly, would Steve Nash probably be number one, most player friendly? And I think uh, it's not that surprising that guys like Kevin Durant, and Kyrie Irving, who do want to exert a lot of influence, would uh, would go that direction. I feel like they're looking at this like, hey, we got a really, really overqualified substitute teacher. You know, this guy's got like a PhD in basketball, and he's just slumming it as a substitute teacher in high school. And now we can kind of do whatever we want. And every once in a while, we can check in with him, and that'll be good. But now we run the show. Is that a good thing, though, Ben? Like to have? No, of someone- course not. I've been out. I'm more out on the Nets than, than Julia. I've never bought a single thing about the Nets, but I do think that it's better to go this direction than like Mark Jackson, right? Or uh, you can make a case for Steve Nash even over a Ty Lue, and it sounds like you know Ty Lue's got a lot of other teams looking after him. I mean, ultimately, you do want to kind of put your your imprint on it. So I can see a level of fit here. Um, I don't think that they're going to win a title, but I don't think there's any coach in the world that was going to coach these guys to a title. Well, if that's the case, then 
I guess we can just move on <laughs> in the conversation. But like, you know, I think about I think about, you know, player friendly coaches, quote unquote, and Steve Kerr kind of had that moniker coming into the Golden State job. And, you know, as we we've seen over the past uh, however many years, what, five years, six years he's been there, like he's ruffled. I should say he's bumped heads with Draymond Green on numerous occasions to the point where, uh, you know, there's been reported uh, borderline uh, fisticuffs in the locker room at halftime of a nationally televised game in Oklahoma City. So, like, Steve Kerr can get fiery. I think fire is always good. I think pushing players is good. And so I'm just a little concerned with... You know, when the players are kind of running the show, which maybe, you know, Sean Marks has a relationship with Steve Nash. He supposedly was also all for this and thinks it's a really good idea. Sure. Um, If the players are all for this, like, how are the players going to feel once, you know, Steve Nash actually has to put on his coach hat when they go through um, some adversity and they don't like it? The players don't like it. Um, I think that that's going to be really interesting to see. And I don't know, man. It's, well, the, the it's, Kerr comparison is interesting because mm-hmm. he was seen as player friendly, but we also know he's like ruthlessly competitive, right? Yes. yes. Same deal with Steve Nash. That, that part actually does check out. And when Nash was working for the Warriors, he made a comment to Zach Lowe at ESPN of saying something along the lines of that Kevin Durant had a tough summer after the first title because he thought that that was going to change his entire life and it just didn't and he wasn't feeling quote-unquote fulfilled um, in that particular moment and, and there you can kind of imagine Nash and Katie like in a workout gym you know some, somewhere in the summer Katie's pouring his heart out to him and you know telling him things maybe he wouldn't say directly to Steve Kerr because there's no chain of command there Nash has you know no dog in the fight he's just trying to listen as a friend and, and to help him get better right mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that dynamic is not the same anymore right and that's no. sort of what you're getting at now Nash is the chain of command right so if you're having a tough day or if you're seeking your fulfillment or if you want you know more ISO touches in the mid post like you've always wanted um, there's only one guy you can go to right you can't whine to that guy really you you've got to go to him and, and talk to him superstar to coach so Already this relationship that has established will change. In fact, it it did change today. And we'll see if they're able to kind of like make it work or we'll see if there are some some tensions going there. I think ultimately, though, to make Julia feel better, this hiring could have been a lot worse, right? If the front office was like trying to be like, hey, you know, we're not going to be a player run organization. We've got to seize back control or we've got to hedge against Kyrie's injury. So we're just going to get the coach who we think is going to work and almost like force it onto our players. That would have definitely been worse. There would have been resentments. You, you kind of were boxed into a corner here. You had to get the players only coach. And Julia, I think that the type of team that you like is long gone. I mean, these nets are going to be this frustrating pseudo title contender for the next two or three years. So if that's not your jam, let me just recommend the Memphis Grizzlies. Um, You know, just maybe hop on their bandwagon or another team like that. Uh, And I I realize I'm basically telling you to like, you know, forget your longtime allegiances and all that. But (laughs) um, the team that you want is never coming back. And I think the, the quicker the Nets fans wrap their minds around that, the better. And I think they have. And there's some upside here. You know, this can be a playoff team easily next year. They should win a series next year if KD's back healthy and looking right. Mm. And uh, I think Steve Nash will be a good ambassador for that organization. You know, I think the fan base will will come to like him. But 
Ultimately, he's being set up with a really difficult job, trying to pull the best out of Kyrie Irving, trying to make Kevin Durant feel fulfilled are really maybe even impossible challenges. And we'll see how well he does. So you brought it up a little bit earlier, but it's really funny how the conversation about what type of playing style Brooklyn will uh, inhabit under Nash is really taking a backseat to just the interpersonal relationships and how he will communicate with Kyrie and KD. And so, I mean, I pose the question to you, like, how do you think that the Brooklyn Nets are going to actually play basketball? Well, I think it will sort of be freewheeling. I think I could see some D'Antoni coming out where it's like, hey, we don't have any plays. We just roll the ball out and let our guys go. You know, I think there's going to be uh, <laughs> a, a lot of Kyrie, do your thing. KD, do your thing. Um, can you play super up-tempo when your two stars are, you know, 28 and older and coming off of major injuries? To me, that's an open question. If KD's back right, um, I could see them playing a very fun, entertaining, high-scoring brand of basketball. I mean, they've got the other pieces, the, the youngsters around them to do it. If you want to load up with small ball lineups, you know, KD, three guards, and, uh, you know, a center. I mean, that that can be a you know, pretty entertaining style to watch. You should be able to get a lot of points. I mean, I guess I'm just, um, I guess how I would describe it is green light. I think that's going to be the offensive strategy. Kyrie, do whatever you want. Green mm. light. KD, do whatever you want. Uh, green light. And I think the biggest tension will come, like I said, is, you know, are they getting into like, you know, quick hitting pick and rolls and really trying to keep the tempo up like Phoenix did during Nash's heyday? Or is it going to slow down into half court isolation stuff because Katie and and Kyrie both love doing that. And it's kind of hard to break those habits at this uh, point of their career. To me, that's the, the number one tension piece here. And it actually, you know what it really recalls? When Nash went to the Lakers, remember, everyone's like, oh, he's going to be this injection, the point guard that Kobe Bryant's always wanted. They're going to be able to find a way to make it work. And instead, it was a complete clash, right? Kobe wanted to ISO. Kobe wanted to do his thing. Nash wanted to try to do pick and rolls with well, Dwight or, or whatever real, else. And, yeah, real quick, like Steve Nash like broke his leg immediately, too. We should We should point that out. Oh, for sure. But like, it wasn't going to work. I mean, I, to me, it no, was like kind no. of dead on arrival. And when he did come back, it was pretty much a mess. I mean, it, it completely flopped. Now, look, these guys were all way older than KD and Kyrie are at this point, right? I mean, Nash was on his last legs, um, had serious back problems, and, and Kobe was um, you know, not at his prime anymore. But there was never really a way to kind of massage that. And you remember how frustrated uh, the coaches were during that time period. I could see a similar story playing out here where, you know, Nash's vision of the beautiful game conflicts with, you know, Uncle Drew basketball. Look, they're not going to play like the Golden State Warriors did in Steve Kerr's first season. They just don't have the personnel for that. Uh, Steph Curry is just this incredibly unique and original type of type of force. And Clay Thompson, et cetera, Draymond Green. It, so that's not going to be what it is. I do think a steroidal version of, of the 2006, 2005, 2007 Phoenix Suns is, you know, the seven seconds or less that you mentioned earlier. I do see that being kind of the focal uh, philosophy here. Um, it'll be very interesting to see if uh, if Kyrie Irving buys into that. And it'll be very interesting to see just how, like, I'm always fascinated when a new coach comes in. Uh, more so than how they play offense, but what their defensive principles are. And that's like a total mystery to me right now. Like, are they going to be switching everything? Is 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 Steve Nash very, um, 
very forward thinking with how he wants to do it. If Jared Allen is still around, will that be drop coverage? Will he look at uh, will he look at how the Bucks play and want to do that? Like I just I think defensive philosophy is is so much more fascinating, and we really have no idea what Steve Nash is going to bring to the table in that department. Well, I really hope he brings in like Sean Marion or uh, Rajah Bell <laughs> as his lead defensive assistant. Wouldn't uh, that be amazing? I would love to yeah. see something like that. No, it's a fair point. Uh, here's my other take. KD should just be a four from here on out. Um, oh, know, the way, no question. The, the way the sport is going, I think the days of him at the three are, should be done. I think you should be surrounding him with three shooters on the perimeter as often as possible. Make his life easier. He can handle the defensive matchups, especially as everybody else is downsizing. Um, honestly, I might even like Katie at the five in some situations, uh, but uh, that that might be safe for the playoffs. But I think that should be how they're planning. And I wouldn't be surprised at all if if Steve Nash is kind of on that one because you look at his history of just you know how important spacing was to what they were trying to do even ten or fifteen years ago, and they they sort of understood that one intuitively. All right, Michael, enough about your Brooklyn Nets and Julia's Brooklyn Nets. We can come back to them. You know, probably nine months uh, the next time they take the court. We've got some games here in the NBA bubble that are worth discussing. We're, you know, we're taping this on Thursday. Wednesday night was absolutely nuts, Michael. I mean, you've got Giannis with the last second foul on Jimmy Butler, who hits free throws with no time left on the clock to win that game for Miami in regulation. You've got Houston and Oklahoma City going through about seven video replays in the last 15 seconds of that game to finally crown a winner. James Harden comes up with the season-saving block shot on everyone's new favorite player, Lou Dort. Um, And Houston advances to face the Lakers. Just a wild, wild night of basketball. But Michael, I wanted to ask you before we even dig into some of those topics, are the referees ruining this thing? Are they overstepping? I mean, no, let's just have an honest conversation here because sure. when when I look at it, the two most clutch people in the NBA are Mark Davis and Scott Foster. If there's a big game, those guys will always show up and leave their mark on it. It's guaranteed. And fans are onto it. You know, they see the referee assignments before the game and everybody's already trotting out, oh, Scott Foster, you know, has this crazy track record with the Rockets or he has this crazy track record with Chris Paul and, you know, Mark Davis... I feel like he's underrated in terms of how much he gets talked about. But, I mean, this guy, didn't he make the call both ends? The, the, the questionable foul call to send Chris Middleton to the free throw line with a few seconds left for Milwaukee. And then the call on Giannis on the other end as well. I believe he made both of those. Um, look, there's a lot of reviews. It's a lot of debates, a lot of angry players, a lot of frustration, on-court confusion, and the games just drag and drag and drag in those late-game moments. Was it too much? Yes, of course it was. Indisputably. Let's start with uh, the Heat-Bucks game. I mean, first of all, I just want to say, why did the... And this is probably a little frustrating to you as someone who's in the bubble. I don't know what your ability is to kind of go from game to game and gym to gym and all that, what the geography is. But like the fact that a Game 7 started while uh, Game 2 of... Heat Bucks was still trying to wrap up because of all the refereeing shenanigans was just like flabbergasting to me. I, I had no idea that they would start the game. Like, what what are we even what are we doing here? Like, let's why don't we just press pause 
and let one game conclude before there's another. There's only two games going on. First, that's first of all for me. I just had to get that out of the way because it was really, really bothering me. No, I'm with uh, you because for me, logistically, I can easily move back and forth between the gyms, but unfortunately, I haven't been able to clone myself. So if I stay for the post-game <laughs> interviews, which I always do, I'm already guaranteed to miss basically the whole first half of the second game. It happens just every single night. And you're right. They're not competing against anybody but themselves. If you just moved the first game up by, you know, 45 minutes, you could probably avoid any overlap and have even more, you know, consecutive television time covered. But what do we know, Michael? We're just podcasters, not television executives. Right, exactly. So let's get to the first uh, terrible call. Probably the worst call, I think. Well, Maybe the worst call of the night. Um, Are you going to power rank these for GQ too? <laughs> I was just, I was just literally the wheels were just spinning in my head. Um, Chris Middleton's desperation three down three with what was it like two seconds to go, something like that. Um, nonsense call, man. Just nonsense. Like Goran Dragic, not even close. There was no contact. Like period. Like he rose up and. Uh, like Dragic is just standing still, arms raised. For those who haven't seen it, um, Dragic it just was, foul. was he was shopping for groceries. I mean, he wasn't even in the scene of the crime. <laughs> like he was completely somewhere else. Check his location data on his phone. That's his alibi. There was no foul. So you you get that down three. All, like already, that's just such a bad call, man. And we're seeing a lot of like I don't know what it is with refs right now. I looked at the the data, and um, there has a there is a slight uptick in the percentage of fouls called on threes uh in the restart it's relative to the regular season i don't know you know it's not like this major ridiculous thing but i don't know if they're trying to protect shooters or or what it is at all but like this one was so egregious and to blow that whistle when you did first of all it's just not a foul so i don't care when it when it's occurring in the game but second of all to actually do that uh, when they did it um, and fundamentally borderline decide the outcome uh, just totally totally wild uh, I you know it kind of like it, it combines with the next call too where like Mark Davis calls this like for, okay so man I'm like getting flustered even trying to like remember no, all of this see, <laughs> no, here, this is behind the scenes podcast studio sometimes when you get flustered I like to hop in and throw you a life preserver but right now I just want to see you drowning your anger Michael this is beautiful like you're you're so mad you can't even organize your thoughts and look we've all been there before and I know there was a lot of people actually out there watching you know, I was hearing from people on Twitter and, and Instagram as well who are just like this is the sport this is where the sport has gone at the very highest level where, you know, the old thing, nobody pays to watch the referees. Well, no one's paying to watch these games, period, because they're being played in a bubble. Can't we let the players be front and center? Exactly, man. 100%. And so what we get after the, the, the absolute travesty that was Chris Middleton's three-shot foul and makes all three free throws, tie ball game, we're going down to the other end. Jimmy Butler, you know, he's pump fakes, tries to step back, fall away on the baseline. And Giannis comes out of nowhere. God bless him. And, I mean, there was, I guess, like, yeah, there's contact there. It's a contact sport. Um, I don't really think that that was a foul, per se. And the immediate response that I got on my phone from 
my Twitter timeline from text messages people were sending me, DMs, was that they could not believe that Mark Davis so blatantly called, uh, whistled a makeup call um, to basically decide a playoff game. Like, it's it, it just like, you can't dig, your, you're already in a hole. He's just trying to dig himself out. I thought that that was really, really bad. And I think both teams just have a, a, a huge right to be monumentally furious with the outcome yeah it's tricky because like the ultimate makeup call would have been um this feature of basketball called overtime right where it's like look okay (laughs) we're just resetting everything you have five minutes go settle this thing between yourselves right um calling the foul in that situation is almost not a makeup call it's like you are officially deciding the game if you call that and that's tricky man uh that's that's really tough I'm sure he would view it as two independent decisions. I'm sure he would point to the tape and be like, what the heck is Giannis doing? You know, with the follow through, there's clearly contact. Um, Did you think it was a foul? The Giannis one I did think was a foul. And, um, you know, look, I'm probably, you know, comically Giannis's biggest defender, but he's got to be better than he's been in this series. I mean, not just on that play, but in general. I mean, there were some flashes finally of real aggressiveness from him and desperation towards the end of game two where he was really starting to turn it up a little bit but he's been kind of dazed and confused for a lot of this series and it's not just him but you know there's a lot of bucks uh, basically everyone besides chris middleton has no clue what's going on right now for the bucks and it's been pretty tough to watch so i actually thought all things considered looking at both calls the right team won that game miami deserved to win it they did win it and Giannis gave it away and he deserved to lose. And I think you saw the frustration with him sitting on the sideline. I mean, he was not trying to charge a referee and freak out. He was sitting there holding his head, you know, picking out his hair, thinking like, God, what did I just do? You know, why did I just do that? That was such a dumb play. I mean, you could just kind of see that those wheels turning in his head. So from that standpoint, um, I didn't leave that game feeling like either team was necessarily like majorly aggrieved. You know, Bud pushed back and said he didn't think it was a foul, uh, but he didn't say anything that I that was going to warrant a fine in his criticism. You know, neither did Giannis. But I guess the the point is, again, so much conversation about the officials. Is that really what we want to have happen here, especially in a weird bubble environment where everyone's experiencing this thing through TV? Uh, it, it's not great. And honestly, Ben, this reminds me of what happened at uh, after Game Two. Um, between the Raptors and the Celtics, where Nick Nurse, like, just, you know, the Raptors, I believe, did not attempt a free throw in the first half of that game. And Jason Tatum was living at the free throw line. And Nick Nurse basically says, you know, the referees treated him well, meaning Tatum, and that you know, he got a lot of calls that maybe he didn't deserve. And I, I kind of like... He said it, they, they took good care of him, which I love. Okay. I love that phrasing. Yeah. It's great. Well, yeah, no, it's a great phrase. I love Nick Nurse. Amazing. Um, very eloquently put. I mean, you know, I'm maybe a little biased. I try not to be biased. I'm watching that game, and I honestly did not see... You know, I went back and watched all of Tatum's drawn fouls. There was maybe one where he got sent to the line. I think it was in late in the third, early in the fourth, where I was kind of like, oh, that's could have gone either way. Didn't need that one. Um, but otherwise, like he's 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 drawing fouls like drawing fouls is a skill. He's a superstar offensive player. 
that's kind of what they do. Getting to the line 13 or 14 times is not something that's outrageous in the NBA right now, if you are that at that caliber of a player. Um, so, I mean, it just, I guess my fundamental point is that it goes back and it's kind of bleeding into everywhere right now with the officiating to a degree that, you know, officials are a part of the game and they've drawn coaches, ch- coaches ire for uh, decades. This isn't brand new stuff. But right now, it just feels like they don't have the uh, the grasp on what is taking place on the court in a way that is particularly uh, infuriating to coaches and players around the league. Yeah, well, it goes back to just the tension of the bubble, the inherent mm-hmm. frustration that players are dealing with. They're an obvious target. Kind of saw all this developing. You know, I, that's why I was asking the referees, you know, even during the seating games, like, are you worried about confrontations on campus, right? Like, what are you doing after games to make sure that you don't run into players? I mean, that because yeah, you could just kind of see it after some of these games. Things are so charged that you worry about things like that. So far, no no reports of that, but uh, I'm ready, Michael. I'm on, I'm on the neighborhood watch <laughs> Get program. Get on that beat. Get on that yeah, beat. I really am. My read on the Nick Nurse one, by the way, was he was just trying to uh, – just to work the work the system a little bit you know he was trying to get uh, his team maybe some favorable calls in future games realizing they needed mm-hmm. some sort of spark and uh you know I, i'm not sure that when he goes back and watch the tape he's really going to feel like oh we got jobbed in game two i think it was more of a you know a situational and a strategic mm-hmm. thing from him but uh we'll see maybe he'll be losing his mind uh you know the next time that we talk about this uh we got some questions on the buck struggles though beyond uh, what i already described you know, with uh, with Milwaukee. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex- craft month with the perfect pizza at home class from craftsy and anytime is right to listen to iheart radio's iheart country radio discover more shows and movies for free hey guys mario lopez here to tell you the national sales event is on at your toyota dealer making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new suv like an adventure ready rav4 Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain from the road to the trails. And with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers. And with available features like the panoramic moonroof, you can sit back, enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit biotoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Tired of restless nights? Meet Lisa, the sleep expert. (sighs) Here at Lisa, we know that good sleep is essential for mental, physical, and emotional health. 
That's why their mattresses are made for exceptional comfort and support, catering to every sleep need. Check out Lisa Sapira Hybrid Mattress, named best hybrid mattress five years running. Sleep hot? The Chill Collection is built with cool-to-the-touch top fabric and layers of high-density comfort foams, all intended to remove excess body heat while maximizing comfort. With Lisa, getting a new mattress has never been easier. Delivery is free, and you have 100 nights to try out your mattress in the comfort of your home. Don't spend another night dreaming of better sleep. For a limited time, save up to $700 off select mattresses plus two free pillows. Go to lisa.com forward slash iHeart for an additional $50 off mattresses and select goods. That's l-e-e-s-a.com forward slash iHeart. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details. Michael, we got some questions about Milwaukee struggles. We're going to double back to that in just one second. What did you make of the crazy end game? between Oklahoma City and Houston. And I'll say this, being in the arena without ready access to the television broadcast, I can confidently declare I had no clue what was going on for like 90 seconds because everyone was freaking out on both teams. Scott Foster is right <laughs> in the middle of it. Uh, we're not getting any real announcements from the PA system about what they're reviewing, what they're looking at, what the call was. Um, so maybe walk me through that. Give me a tutorial on what happened there in the last 20 seconds. I don't think there's a uh, a human being alive who could walk you through what happened at the end of that game. Um, it's like Calculus it, 4 or something? Ex- exactly. That's exactly right. Um, look, uh, you know, watching on television, there were plays where, I mean, one of the, the, the weirdest whistles to me was the before the inbounds, sideline inbounds pass, I believe it was on the last possession where they called a foul on... Uh, James Harden for grabbing Chris Paul or Eric. Uh, yeah, I think it was James Harden for grabbing somebody. Um, first of all, like that happens um, on, let's see, every single possession in the NBA in a playoff game. And it's basically never called. So like, what are you doing blowing the whistle there? And then number two, like Chris Paul's reaction to this call was fury and rage which just made it so much more confusing when you were watching on television you had no idea what was going on um it was such a mess the end of that game because you know i got an email from my editor actually right after james harden blocked uh lou dort's three and like in any other circumstance that's the ball game right like you know that that's kind of the nail in the coffin there they're getting the ball back they have the lead etc and like my my editor sends me an email like up oh, like it's all over Harden's so lucky blah 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 and then I responded immediately like no this game isn't even close to being over I just had a sense probably from my feelings the bitter taste that was in my mouth at the end of the heat bucks game that this was not even close to being over and it wasn't close to being over I mean it felt like it lasted I think I saw that the last minute of clock time in that game seven was actually 16 minutes long in real time, which is just like, okay, if I'd asked my wife to uh, watch that game with me, if she was awake, she would have never watched another basketball game with me for the rest of my life. So uh, just terrible stuff. Ringing endorsement, ringing endorsement. That's (laughs) that's good to know. No, it was pure Uh, chaos. Um, that, the block shot was phenomenal. And I don't think that the, what happened afterwards should take away from it. I mean, such a key moment for Harden 
so much hanging on that, and he comes through just to wreck every narrative about the choking Rockets, and he's you know fading from the limelight. He can't hit a shot on Westbrook smoking layups. It was like every negative playoff ghost Houston had got swatted mm-hmm. away, just like Lou Dort's shot. Um, but yeah, as you're living it, you're like, wow, it would have been just a lot cooler if that ball had taken about two more seconds to go out of bounds so the game would have just ended on that and it would have been so much cleaner. Um, ultimately, my, my biggest question from that end game and it's more of a basketball one and less about um, you know less about the referees. What happened with Chris Paul, Michael? I know you're, you've been a big-time defender of both Harden and Paul mm. over the years. Do we put this one on Paul just running out of gas? I mean, it seemed like there was way too much Dennis Schroeder from the, from the, uh, the, the Thunder down the stretch. Mm. Obviously, Lou Dort, the game is on the line. He's taking the big three-pointer as a, you know, a rookie, basically out of absolutely nowhere. How did it come to this for Oklahoma City? Uh, and, and do we assign some blame to Chris Paul for that? I, you know, I think it's low-hanging fruit, honestly, with Chris Paul. And I I kind of look at it like... Well, sometimes low-hanging fruit is still fruit, though. You know, it's still, sure. it's, it's still edible. And I'm just saying, you know, are, you, are, you, um, are you taking a bite at the apple? No, I mean, look, Chris, like, I go back to just preseason expectations i look at this team that nobody thought could do anything um chris paul leads them to the playoffs chris paul leads them to the best crunch time offense in the nba um chris paul leads them to game seven in a series that frankly okay 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 pump the brakes look yeah can't two things you can let no just seriously can two things be true chris paul was their savior he completely over delivered all season long and Uh In the final two minutes, he left a lot on the table. Can both those things be true? Yes. I think both of those things can be true. I also think that Chris Paul was not necessarily the reason why Oklahoma City lost this game. And I think that you're asking way too much to kind of put on... Like, look, he has like, you know, he has a lot of moves in his bag, sure. But like in those spots, you kind of know where he's going to go. And... uh at the at the end of that game, you know, he wants to go to the right elbow to get his pull up. And like the Rockets know that. The Rockets aren't dummies. So you have this play where Russell Westbrook almost steals the ball from CP. You have they just like they, they know what's 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 coming. And when someone like Gallinari is a complete no show, when you have, you know, Shea Gilgis Alexander uh, his stat line was I guess okay and he hit a big corner three with like 90 seconds to go to give them the lead. But like he was pretty much just not even close to as effective as he was during the regular season. Steven Adams, I don't even know why he was on the floor, to be honest with you. He completely, you know, he he's catching a lot of flack for um, that particular end of game sequence where he just is not diving to the rim and there's an entire, uh, an ocean's worth of space in the paint that they could have tied the game with. So like, I don't know, man, like maybe I'm making excuses for CP. But like at the end of the day, blaming the thirty-six-year-old, six-foot-tall point guard for not leading you to victory against the favorite, the uh, team that is favored, like I mean, like you know what I mean? Like I just I can't no, really I mean, go there. I, I do know what you mean. When you're bringing in his age and his height, you definitely cross the line into excuses, Michael, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> There's no doubt. But I don't necessarily blame you, and I don't necessarily disagree. 
they're not even close to that position without Chris Paul. And that actually qualifies not only for the whole season like you were describing, not only for the entire playoff series, which I think is pretty self-evident, but also for in Game 7. I mean, he he put them in position to make that tight late, and there was no guarantee that was going to be a tight game. Houston had had a couple in this series where they just came out playing very well and, you know, took it to Oklahoma City. And I was actually kind of expecting that for Game 7. I thought it was going to be a comfortable Houston win. They were going to be so annoyed by how Game 6 went. And I actually thought if it was a close game, I thought for sure OKC was going to win because they'd won all the close games in that series. And I just figured that Westbrook or or Harden would find a way to screw it up. They nearly did, by the way. I mean, Westbrook missing layup after layup down the stretch. Harden, I think, took like one shot in the final eight minutes, I want to say. Or maybe he made one and and took two, something along those lines. Um, So, I mean, it was a a very near collapse. And Chris Paul was just kind of like waiting and waiting for his moment to capitalize on it. And they just couldn't do it. Um, Your point about the... The Thunder being predictable. Westbrook said exactly that in his post-game interview. He said he knew exactly what play Donovan wanted to run because he had been there for years. Um, it wasn't an accident. It wasn't <laughs> coincidental. I mean, he just kind of like aired them out over that. That's always tough, you know. I mean, that's that's pretty tricky in that spot when you need mm-hmm. to get a basket to have the other team know what you're going to do beforehand. Is um, that's an indictment more of coaching, honestly, than it is of, uh, of of Chris Paul. But I do think he has to shoulder some of the blame. The quality of their shots late were just not good enough. And this guy's, his entire career has been about generating quality shots for himself and for his teammates. And uh, he's had some moments where he's come through big. Everybody remembers that that runner over Tim Duncan in the playoffs, uh, you know, mm-hmm. about five years ago. So he's done it. He just didn't do it um, in that particular moment. And look, I mean, we, we would be telling a very different story if Schroeder had made a couple of those layups. And mm-hmm. I also want to say, like, this does not belong in the pantheon of what people would call Chris Paul choke jobs whatsoever. Um, not even close. And, and I don't think anyone's going that direction, but I, I was worried that might start up based on how they lost it. Just the chaos and the weirdness, and there was the missed free throw from Gallinari, just all of it. Um, this was not Chris Paul flinging the ball all over the court against the Oklahoma City Thunder when he was playing for the Clippers. Um, this mm-hmm. was a very valiant effort. And, uh, you know, I think ultimately it was it was a lot like the, the Utah Jazz the night before. They just they were the first team to run out of gas. So uh, fascinating ending there. Let's hop back to the Bucks though, because I think that they're sort of one of the biggest stories here. Down 0-2 to Miami. Like I mentioned, Giannis has not looked right. Um, Miami seems to be out coaching, uh, you know, Milwaukee at every turn. And Art writes, is Budenholzer the worst coach in the playoffs? Is it possible to fire a coach midway through his series? And why shouldn't they? Is Giannis physically incapable of playing over 36 minutes? If they lose this series, Giannis is out of there, right? So, Michael, look, everyone's going to race the Giannis free agency talk. Let's not do that yet. There's plenty of time for that down the road, right? Um, And he's not even a free agent this offseason. It's the following year. Focus more on Mike Budenholzer. What is he doing wrong? What does he need to do? And would you agree with Art that he's the worst coach in the playoffs? What do you think? (laughs) Um, No, I I don't think that Coach Bud is the worst coach. I don't think really... Well, stop there. Let's rank. Okay. Because let's draft because I'm taking Frank Vogel. I'm taking Michael Malone. I'm taking Doc Rivers. You're you're taking Frank Vogel over Mike Budenholzer? In a playoff series? Absolutely. 
Mike Boonholzer never... Make the case, make the case, make the case, make the case. The case is that he's got a two-time MVP playing 13 minutes a night like he's a seventh man on the (laughs) JV high school team. That's the freaking case. Look, I mean, if Chris Middleton wasn't out of his mind in this series, these guys would have two losses by 20-plus points. I don't think he's had them ready, frankly. I don't think Milwaukee was ever comfortable in the bubble. They had one amazing win off the top against Boston. They didn't look right the rest of the regular season. They had nothing to play for. You can throw all those excuses if you want. They came out flat against Orlando before Giannis was able to kind of single-handedly take that series over. And they've looked terrible. And they've looked shook in the two games against Miami. They have looked disorganized. They have looked less prepared than their opposition. And to me, that all points to coaching. I, I'm definitely taking Spo over uh, Budenholzer. I'm taking Brad and Nick Nurse over Budenholzer. I mean, I think... Uh, you know, you look at, uh, you know, it's probably Michael Malone or D'Antoni or Budenholzer. Those are the three worst coaches in the playoffs, right? So, so okay, real quick. Like, who, are you, who are you taking Budenholzer no, over? I, I, I don't think, I think that this is a reductive way to look at it. I think the more interesting conversation and way to look at this is just rigidity versus flexibility from the mindset of uh, a coach and whether or not he's able or willing to get creative on the fly with his players. And so well, look, Michael, I'm with you. And if we're ranking these guys on flexibility, Budenholzer is dead last out of the last yes, eight coaches yes. left. And he has never done mental yoga in his life. This is the most <laughs> rigid person I've ever seen. And it's killing them. Not playing Giannis enough minutes is killing them. Not loading up Middleton's minutes is killing them. Not having these guys kind of ramped up and ready to go for these situations is killing them. Not adjusting on defense so that, you know, Miami is basically getting almost whatever it wants. I mean, just three after three after three from good shooters. Um, I don't know, man. Like, I would really like to know which coach you would put above Budenholzer, either on your flexibility rankings or just overall coach rankings, because I think that those two are actually the same thing right now. We're in the bubble where, like, everything's different. You have to be adaptable. You have to kind of, you know, do things on the fly. You need to adjust to the new circumstances and the new style of play. The speed is up. The offense is up. The three-pointers are up and all of that. Mm-hmm. And to me, he's just flat-footed on all of it. He's just trying to live in the past of, you know, the February memories of, oh, the great, uh, you know, the great Giannis player of the month. Uh, you know, it's all going to work out. It's like, bro, it's not all working out. You guys are getting worked right now. Okay, so push back on one thing. You know, technically, you know, Giannis is playing 36.1 minutes per game uh, in the second round so far in these two games. And I think it's just like, it's this weird it's it's a it's a it's a cemented narrative basically that uh he doesn't play Giannis as much as he could and I think that some of that comes from the optics of how Giannis is subbed in and out of games and relative to uh other superstar caliber players and so I went back and I looked actually to see how many like fourth quarters did Giannis play uh in entirety this season and uh, game one of this series against Miami, he played the entire fourth quarter. He did not play the entire fourth quarter in game two. Um, he had done it three times this entire year before that, and a lot of that is just because the Bucks steamroll people. Like, I understand that. And so you don't need Giannis to play for an entire fourth quarter. Um, 
But the way that they sub him out, and in game two, you know, they they gave him this little breather um, midway through the fourth, and it's just kind of like, why? Why are we? Why are we doing this? Why can't? I mean, they obviously know something about Giannis that we don't. Um, why can't he be effective for, um, say, an entire second half? Like, why is this not? possible especially the team like I have a lot of issues with Giannis that we can get into and I actually think that he might be a bigger um a bigger I don't want to say problem because I don't think he's a problem but just there are there are aspects of Giannis's game that are detrimental in this particular matchup against Miami that I don't really think it even matters how many minutes he's playing um but I do think that the minutes thing is like why like is he go is Bud going to play Giannis forty plus in a game seven? I think that is where it gets kind of interesting, and I don't think that Bud would well, ever. Yeah, do here's that. the thing. I mean, he's going to play him forty plus, and it's going to already be too late, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, he he just doesn't have the right mentality. So, a couple thoughts. First of all, Giannis needs to play more, but he also needs to play better. He has not been right, and and we can't stress that enough. This is not all Coach Bud's fault. Like Giannis has to be more effective when he's on the court. He has to do a better job of avoiding avoiding foul trouble because that often limits his playing time um, as well. So that's a, a key I, can, factor. Can, can I jump in and interrupt you for two seconds? Giannis has no choice, man. Giannis, this is this is going all the way back to when you and I were in Chicago 17 million years ago at All-Star Weekend discussing Giannis's inability to create shots in the mid-range during an All-Star game. Giannis has no moves. He doesn't. And so during the end of these games against incredibly intelligent defensive schemes put on by Eric Spolstra, put on by the Miami Heat, Bam Adebayo, Jimmy Butler, Andre Iguodala, these guys are really smart defenders. Giannis has nothing, like nowhere to go. He's got a spin move to get to the basket. He's a freight train in transition. In the half court, there is absolutely nothing. And he doesn't want to go to the free throw line either. And he's shooting 50% from the free throw line in this series also. So, I mean... Yeah, I, I think there's some truth to what you're saying. You're being a little bit harsh. Look, he has enough moves to, to consistently generate dunks against even the best defenses. And his, you know finishing percentage around the basket's pretty darn high so he doesn't have he doesn't have Kawhi Leonard moves he doesn't have LeBron level moves obviously he doesn't have Harden level moves but he's doing enough off the dribble or moving to get himself really good looks around the hoop the problem I think right now is he's not trusting his jumper in the mid-range or the three-pointer all that work on building the three-point shot out goes out the window in a tense playoff game because he doesn't trust it it's very similar to like the DeMar DeRozan situation in Toronto a few years ago where you know he wants to talk about how he's made progress but when it really comes to the pressure moments he doesn't even bring it out of the bag because he's not comfortable so that's an issue right you look at his shot chart yeah nothing in the mid-range in game two you can still survive and win these games without that stuff uh, Milwaukee has done it previously as long as he's putting the right type of pressure on the rim and setting up their drive and kick stuff and getting to the free throw line, you'll be okay. You know, he shot the free throws better in game two than he did in game one. Game one, career high, eight missed free throws. I mean, it was pretty ugly. Um, and he, I definitely think he's, uh, you know, he's in his head a, a little bit about that. But when you go back to, uh, you know, Coach Bud, look, here's the thing. Ultimately, the one person whose opinion really matters about any of this is Giannis's. And he's taking a very curious approach during this series. Early after game one, he mm-hmm. uh, he was asked, 
do you want to switch on to Jimmy Butler late in the game when Jimmy's going nuts and you can take on that primary defensive responsibility? Giannis pushed back on the question. He, I thought it, maybe he thought it was a little bit unfair. He's like, why would you ask me that? And then he said, look, I, I basically follow coach's orders. Whatever he tells me to do, I'm going to do. After game two, Giannis is again asked about his playing time. Do you want to play more minutes? Is it time to ramp up? You're in a, in a difficult spot in the series. Again, Giannis says, I do what coach, whatever coach wants me to do. Of course, I want to play 48 minutes a night. But uh, you know he's watching the game, he's coaching the game, so I'm going to follow his orders. These are team-first responses from Giannis, but I don't think you have to read between the lines uh, very diff- uh, very hard at all to see what he's saying. You know, it's look, this is Coach Bud's operation, right? And if you extend that, and they lose this series, who's responsible for the operation? Who who's responsible ultimately for the game planning and the strategy and all that stuff? Giannis is distancing himself from the major decisions, the fundamental decisions of how often does he play and who does he guard, right? That is a red flag. That is a warning flag. That is not Giannis out there being a proactive coach killer. Not at all. He is not that guy, but he is essentially putting it all on Bud's shoulders. And we'll see how Bud responds. And it's a real dynamic. If if they lose this series... They're the biggest disappointment in the playoffs, period. Changes are going to have have to happen, and they don't have a lot of buttons they can push. And the most obvious button for them to push would be Coach Bud. And I, okay, real quick, I, I I think that that's that would be an overreactionary move. Personally, I think you have to kind of look at all the good that Bud has done, and I I don't look at him as like a you know, the Doug Collins to Phil Jackson. Like, I don't look at him as the Doug Collins of the Milwaukee Bucks. Right. Well, the Um, idea was that Jason Kidd was the Doug Collins and he was supposed to be the Phil Jackson. We could say definitively he's not the Phil Jackson. Probably, probably not. Um, I like Coach Bud too in theory, but we have to look at the evidence of what's playing out in practice, Michael. I think we got you got to be a little bit harder on this guy, man. I know you're trying to step up for him, but this has not been good for him. Spo is coaching circles around him. Well, Spo is a great coach. And, you know, to be honest with you, heading into the series and before the playoff seedings were even met, I thought that these two teams would go up against each other. I thought that the Miami Heat would win the series. So I'm not even like that. When I say overreactionary, like I don't I don't think that the Milwaukee Bucks, I think that they're constructed in a way that is very difficult to win four times out of seven tries against a really good team and the Miami Heat are a really good team a team that you know Spo is just like playing these lineups where like Jay Crowder is at the five despite Giannis being on the floor he doesn't care he knows that he needs to score points to beat this team and he's just making them bleed so like you but is just not on that level um in terms of adaptability because uh, he's had so much success during the regular season. He had so much success last year, the playoffs before they ran up against the Toronto Raptors. Um, I just, when I look at who to like blame here, some of me is just like, part of me is just like, I don't really want to blame anyone. I think that the Heat, you just, you got to give credit to the Miami Heat and a lot of the things that they're doing. And then the other part of me is just like, again, I, I just don't think that Giannis is. This, I'm not even trying to be like hot takey here. I just don't think he's like that that type of player yet, and I don't want to like denigrate Giannis. I think he's incredible, and I think a lot of what he does is 
just show-stopping through the regular season. It's just like he is uh, – when I watch him play, I'm able to really articulate what is the difference between the regular season and winning a regular season MVP award and being able to adjust your own game and take what the defense is giving and uh, just navigate a playoff series like some of the other great stu- superstars and players in our league do. No, um, it's, it's fascinating that Bud might be the most inflexible – of the coaches left and that Giannis might be the most inflexible of the superstar players left. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, they do suffer kind of from that same fatal flaw and it could, you know, it could wind up being their undoing in this series. The only reason why I raised these um, questions about Bud's future is because it's a practical reality. Like Giannis is coming up on free agency. He's not going to be satisfied with going out in the second round. Um, he, he had a lot bigger dreams. His hopes were swelled. He's got the MVPs under his belt. He's made it clear what he, he cares about, which is winning. And um, the organization is going to feel significant pressure to cater to him, just like all NBA organizations feel pressure to cater to their main guys. And they're not going to find an upgrade on Middleton as the number two. They're going to have a hard time upgrading their uh, you know, supporting well, cast in a meaningful way. They can't undo the Brogdon trade. Yes, um, that's what I wanted to bring up with you. I wanted to bring that up real quick. That is... Right. Uh, that's not looking good. Brogdon just had a, an incredibly impressive playoff series uh, against the Miami Heat. You know, he, he you know he wasn't like uh, Detroit Pistons Isaiah Thomas, but he played very well. And you kind of look at some of the issues uh, with this Bucks team and with the fact that uh, Giannis is not really a primary ball handler at the end of a game. Um, and yeah, it's that's a real costly decision. I'm just gonna say that. For sure. You know, I call Reggie Jackson Root Canal Reggie for the, the experience of watching him. We're going to have to come up with some other dental terminology for Eric Bledsoe, man. Some of these decisions that he makes just absolutely make me pull my hair out. I mean, they're just nonsensical. He's coming off an injury, but that was hardly the first time uh, in game two where he's just doing these things that just make you scratch your head and wonder what he's even up to. Michael, I do want to shift gears and hop to some of these other topics that we've got because there's been a lot going on. We really need to say goodbye, I think, to the Utah Jazz. Crazy game earlier this week. Jamal Murray uh, and Denver barely ekes it out. Another just wild March Madness-style ending where Murray takes off running and uh, you know in transition and feeds it to Torrey Craig. Torrey Craig smokes the layup. The ball goes down the other way. <laughs> Mike Conley's got a shot to potentially win the series in almost like Damian Lillard fashion. Uh, it barely rims out. Uh, you know, Donovan Mitchell winds up on the ground, ground just, you know, heartbroken, and, and Murray comes over and hugs him. The whole mm-hmm. scene was just absolutely wacky and wild. Um, but let's start with the um, the the uh, Utah side of things. Johnny says, I want to preface this by saying I am a huge fan of Donovan Mitchell. With that said, I cannot deny the beautifully orchestrated choke that we just witnessed by the Jazz. Congratulations to the Denver Nuggets, but I have to say this one hurts. And Wes chimes in by saying it's unconscionable that you two bozos. Actually, he didn't say that. I'm just going to add that for effect. Uh, it's unconscionable that you guys spent 20 minutes talking about Jamal Murray and ignored Mitchell. They're both 23 and Mitchell has been the more consistent and better player. Wes, I agree on the uh, all the parts except for it being unconscionable. I mean, come on. Murray was the story when we talked about him. Mitchell also had a phenomenal series, came up just short. Uh, Michael, what did you think of that final sequence in Game 7? Is Johnny right? Was that really a choke, or was it just a situation of everybody ran out of gas and, gas and it was the last man standing? 
I mean, the score was 80 to 78. Uh, so I, I would say that Honestly, a halftime score, right? I mean, usually. Ridiculous. <laughs> Honestly, ridiculous. Um, and so, you know, running out of gas, that's probably what <clears throat> what I would say occurred here. You know, I, I actually, I, I had this conversation. This is a slight sidebar, but I had a conversation with uh, Jared Dudley the other day. And one of the things he told me was, it is more grueling than you can imagine playing these games with just one day of rest in between. It's like... There's no practice time. There's really no time to like adjust and uh, uh, just make strategic adjustments, implement strategic adjustments, um, get right physically, rest. Uh, it's just like it's this wild sprint right now. And I think we saw a little bit of that in game seven between these two teams. Um, I think like, you know, first of all, I think, I'm looking at Nikola Jokic's performance in that game, and I, I, I hark back to your angle about Nikola Jokic, this like uh, endangered species dinosaur, coming through at the 30, 14, and 4. I mean, Ben, first of all, I think you really owe Nikola an apology. Um, second of all, I... I, I Careful, I'm, he's I'm, about <laughs> to get played right off the court by the Clippers' wings, but that's fine. No, uh, look, I'm not saying he's... he's um, you know, ruined forever. But I just think that the relative importance of those guys is is fading. Um, he stepped forward in a big time where they jumped on his back in the fourth quarter of that game. Um, I still, I mean, I get, put it this way. If Denver is going to upset the Clippers, who needs to play like out of his mind more? Who is going to be driving that upset? Will it be Jokic or will it be Murray? No, I mean, I, I still agree with you there. I think it's going to be Murray. <clears throat> Although they need a lot of production out of Jokic yeah, against really the, it's yeah. it's kind of both, but it's yes. I, I guess I just bank in a certain level of production from from Jokic, and so maybe he has the um, you know maybe he's sure. catching grief because he was there first, right? And we've kind of set our bar in, in terms of expecting a certain level of play, and he's mm-hmm. got a matchup advantage there. I mean, Zubak is good, but he's not Jokic, right? So he should be able to to do things. But I think with the way that the Clippers play their ability to, to kind of dictate style of the series. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, and, and you just look at Denver's wings and you could look all day. You're not going to find a lot of help there. Right. Um, no. that, that's why the, the pressure falls to Murray. And uh, I, I would say he's kind of the, the most important piece. So again, like who's going to be driving the winning or the losing um, to me, it's Murray more than Jokic, but uh, it was great to see Jokic step up and look, come on. I mean, I got a soft spot in my heart for him. I actually thought he had the, uh, the funniest line of anybody uh-huh. a- about the, uh, the crazy end game when he said, look, we're laughing now, but that could have been tragic. And he delivered it. He wasn't laughing. He wasn't smiling. He wasn't even smirking. He was just sitting there like, oh my God, we just dodged a bullet basically was his, was his uh, mentality after that game. So, um, you know, I did enjoy that. Yeah, that was great. Um, I guess like the next thing we should address is the Donovan Mitchell critique when we were gushing about Jamal Murray. And I don't know, I feel like we've talked about maybe I'm, maybe this is like me confusing either our offline discussions or other discussions that I have in my life. But like Donovan Mitchell is not getting ignored, uh, at least in my head. Um, no, at Wes, all. Michael loves Donovan Mitchell. <laughs> <laughs> 
he's incredible. Um, so like, no, absolutely no disrespect to Donovan Mitchell, who was, I mean, through the first, what, four, five games of this series. And then in game six as well, he was going shot for shot with Murray, who finished with 50. So well, um, let's phrase it this way, Michael. You know, I always like to play the hypothetical game. What could this look like five or 10 years from now? If we're saying, what is Mitchell's absolute ceiling as a player? And we've we've talked about Luka as, you know, an MVP next year, you know, multiple MVP, multiple champion, you know, kind of, you know, getting himself into the kind of the all-time greats mm-hmm. type of conversation. We mentioned Murray as being probably not like, number one or two on the best 23 and under players, but deserving a a spot like kind of in the second tier behind guys like Luca and Tatum and establishing himself there. Where does Mitchell fall? And we've even done this with uh, John Morant as well, trying to figure out how good could he be? How much could he lead a team? Could he ever, you know, duplicate Derrick Rose's MVP season? What does Mitchell's best case scenario ceiling look like to you? So I think the number one comparison a lot of people love to make is... Uh, Dwayne Wade and I I'm not saying his career will be Dwayne Wade's at all but one of the interesting things like if I'm just mapping out where I think Mitchell is going um, as a player like I can see him winning a scoring title for sure I think he has like just his a bit like the fact that he was getting to the free throw line uh, in that series the fact that his pull-up three is legitimate and this entire season his pull-up twos from the elbow from the mid-range have been you know some of the best in the league um that 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 fact kind of went under the radar a little bit this dude can really shoot the basketball and he just has I mean he won a dunk contest too so he's one of the more athletic players in the entire NBA so when I look at him I see I see a scoring title in his future but I see him and this is not supposed to be an insult at all, but I just see him being kind of like that lead scoring option on a team that just always gets to the playoffs and also always loses in the first round. And that's that's kind of his destiny in the NBA, in my opinion. Wow. Wow. That's pretty harsh. I, mean, I think he's got a chance to win some a playoff scoring series. title. Uh, hey, score. No, he's a no, perennial I mean, all-star who's going to lead the league in scoring someday. That's no, you're, you're, you're basically saying he's a better case ver- version of Booker who's going to win a scoring title and never make the playoffs. I mean, that's basically <laughs> what you're saying. I <laughs> <laughs> kid. I think he has got a chance to be a little bit more of that player. I what, To me, the most interesting question that will determine Mitchell's ceiling and future is does Utah Go decide bear. to pull the yeah does do they decide to pull the plug on Gobert because yep. you can imagine Mitchell in a completely spread offense right um like doing like let's say he had Chris Tapps Porzingis as his center who's just always outside the three point arc spotting up and capable of hitting those shots right imagine mm-hmm. how much room he has to operate one on one imagine all those in between games all those floaters all those runners um, all the occasional surprise dunks on somebody, right? All that stuff would be so much easier for him. His numbers would look better. I'm sure he would be happier. He would be a bigger star. He would be more famous. Uh, he's incredibly marketable. He's clearly a franchise guy. And when you're looking how this bubble ball played out, Gobert played amazing. But you, you have to decide, is he still going to be able to be as effective on that level for the next couple of years to the point where you're willing to pay him the contract that's coming? And does his presence come at the detriment of what a team could look like with Mitchell and the spread offense? And that's that's sort of what it boils down to. That's one of the toughest roster questions to me in the entire league. Um, I've talked myself into both scenarios, 
But I think ultimately you've seen the ceiling on what a Rudy Gobert team looks like. I don't think you're going to make the conference finals with Rudy Gobert as one of your guys. And if you get there, you're going to be out early because of fit issues and matchup issues and just how the sport is played. So to me, I would be going all in on the retool around Mitchell. I would be trying to make the Utah Jazz and those awesome orange jerseys they had like the hottest thing in the NBA. Let's try to be, uh, you know, let's try to be the the most fun show on uh, on uh, on the hardwood and see if you can do it. I'm not sure they're going to go that direction. They seem to really value and appreciate everything that Rudy can do. Mitchell and Gobert together seem like they patch things up well enough. Um, mm. You know, during these this bubble, I mean, you know, maybe, maybe not. They weren't screaming at each other. I only saw one chair Sweet. kicked, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> I only saw one chair kicked uh, during the bubble, but uh, you know, we'll we'll see. I think it's just one to circle as we head into the off season. Hey, Michael, I want to close this up on a more serious note here quickly. Um, We've got a nice, thoughtful email from Lindsay. She writes, Hey, Michael, I've listened to Open Floor forever. I'm kind of the grandma of the Open Floor Globe. Now, Lindsay, come on. I mean, you do have some thoughtfulness, uh, grandma tendencies. She actually sent me a Lego alligator, Michael, to the, uh, the bubble to uh, keep me company wow. after I, I took pictures of alligators. She somehow found a Lego piece of an alligator and mailed it out here. One of the nicest things anyone's ever done for me, frankly. Uh, so, but I, come on, Lindsay, you're not a grandmother. Let's, let's not go crazy. She continues. You've been a wonderful addition to the podcast, Michael. I've been thinking a ton about the NBA's decision, whether they should play or not play. And which option is better for achieving the social justice goals? The point I keep coming back to is something that you mentioned several weeks ago. At the 1968 Olympics, Tommy Smith and John Carlos competed, won gold and bronze, and then during the medal ceremony raised their fists in a protest that will be remembered for all time. At the same Olympics, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar boycotted, refusing to try out for the men's team. His act, which was no less brave and potentially costly at the time, is largely forgotten by history. This isn't a perfect parallel to our current times, and there are a ton of factors to weigh when analyzing whether to play or not play. But when you mentioned Abdul-Jabbar's boycott on the podcast, Michael, I thought, oh yeah, I always forget about that. What the Bucks did took tremendous courage, and it made immediate concrete progress. I support their actions 100%. I also think these platforms that the playoffs give to the players is unparalleled. When Kyrie argued the bubble would be a distraction... With your words on Tommy Smith, John Carlos, and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar in mind, I firmly disagreed with Kyrie. Likewise, I think continuing the playoffs is the best option for drawing the greatest amount of attention to the Black Lives Matter movement and the importance of voting in the 2020 election. So, Michael, I know you've kind of gone back and forth on this. You've made the uh, the other case for what a major statement it would be if they didn't play. What did you make of Grandma Lindsay's um, uh, comparison here to 1968 and did it move you one way or the other? Uh, no, I, I get what, first of all, I love how you spent 20 seconds letting Lindsay know that she's not a grandma and then calling her a grandma at the beginning of, of my answer. So yeah, confl- conflicting messages from me all of it. <laughs> I think that this is, I, I, I fundamentally see what Lindsay's saying and you know, not a lot of people, the fact that not a lot of people know or remember that Kareem Abdul-Jabbar um, boycott the 1968 Olympics, um, I don't, it's really d- difficult for me to kind of like take that and then relate it to 2020. I just think 
a lot of people are l- looking back at the 60s and there are aspects of it that just like have no relationship to current times and in this specific context i don't see it necessarily but i do also look i i do think that and I, I, I guess I like constantly go back and forth on this in my head, but like, yeah, players do have this huge platform. There was tangible change that was affected by uh, the Milwaukee Bucks decision not to play last Wednesday. I think that it was uh, unequivocally a good thing and an unprecedented thing and a step forward in a lot of these discussions that we talk about. Um I just can't ever go all the way to say that playing is better than not playing. And I just think it's such a nuanced issue. And I'll probably always feel that way and and never have uh, a black or white take on it. It, it doesn't sit right with you. I, I can understand that. Um, I guess, do you think that if Kareem Abdul-Jabbar had done what the, um, you know, uh, John Carlos and Tommy Smith had done, would that have made a bigger impact? Do you think that we would remember that more? We might remember it. Look, I think it could have potentially done irreparable damage to Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. If you just want to go back to that time period and who was covering sports and how they viewed sports. And I mean, there were a lot of, you know, just if you go back and read Kareem's. Like, like, auto- it, could, like it could have been like a Kaepernick situation, like blackballing or or just yes. media, media yes, negativity. It, it, Exactly. I mean, there are, there are conservative members of the sports media today, but back then it was just it was almost like a hundred percent white and uh, a majority conservative slant. So Kareem Abdul-Jabbar had a very uh, fraught relationship with the media for that reason, and he was misunderstood throughout his entire career. And I think that if he were to win a gold medal at the 1968 Olympics and then raise his fist up, his relationships going forward. Once he got to the NBA, because um, at the time he was he was not in the NBA. If, once he got to the NBA, Milwaukee, etc. Um, I think that it could have been pretty bad for him, and who knows no. where we would be today. It's a great point. I mean, he got flack for changing his name, right? So imagine mm-hmm. how people are going to react if he puts people, his fist up. Pe- people refuse to uh, call him Kareem Abdul-Jabbar for years. If you can even imagine how disrespectful that is. Yeah, it's, that's crazy. A great point, Michael. That got me thinking. Lindsay's email got me thinking. I think I'm still with her on this one, but I understand um, I understand the counterpoint. And, you know, when you do look back, we talked about the tangible change. From my understanding, that meeting of the Wisconsin legislature um, wasn't particularly meaningful, right? Um, that, that people had kind mm-hmm. of circled and hoped for. It didn't sound like they made any real progress. And that frustration is still looming, right? If you're those players and, and you're you're wanting to see something happening, you're seeing the NBA wheels turning and you're not seeing wheels turning in other directions, that's still going to be on your mind. Um, this story is not going away. And that's why I brought up this question today, because um, you know, as we look forward over the next five or six weeks, I mean, it's going to be just frenetic, crazy end games like we've seen on the court. But these other issues are only going to get more taut um, as we get closer to the election and the teams that are still in it, you know, and that are looking like they're going to be making long runs, you know, particularly the Clippers, Lakers, as much as I hate to say it, Michael, the Celtics, um, all those all those teams have been loud and out front 
on these issues, right? So buckle up, I guess is my point. Let's not lose sight of that as we're getting to watch all these amazing playoff games. Guys, we hit as much as we possibly could today, but there's so much more. Michael and I could talk for another hour on all sorts of other subjects. Please email us, openfloormail at gmail.com, openfloormail at gmail.com. We'll take all your uh, playoff reactions, Steve Nash reactions, whatever you've got, we want to hear it. And check us out on Apple Podcasts by searching for Open Floor. That's two words. When you find our page, scroll down. It will say rate and review. Tap five stars. It's just that easy to help us spread the word. Now, Michael's on Instagram and Twitter at Michael V as in Victor Pina. I'm on Instagram at Ben.Golliver on Twitter at Ben Golliver. I know Michael's got a piece up recently about Kawhi Leonard and the Clippers. Hopefully, we will double back on that one early next week when the Clippers, uh, you know, take on uh, the Denver Nuggets in their second round series. Michael, until then, I will talk to you. Talk soon, Ben. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex- Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. Whether it's your first time betting or you've been gambling for years, have a plan and know the game. Be aware of the rules and odds before you gamble. Set a budget and never gamble with money you can't afford to lose. Take a break and consider teaming up with trusted friends to help you stick to your budget. Remember, if you or a loved one has a gambling problem, call 1-800-GAMBLER 24-7 or go to HelpMyGamblingProblem.org for free confidential services. Bring spring color inside this season with Bear Premium Plus paint starting at just $28.98 a gallon at the Home Depot. Add a pop of blue to your kitchen with the Bear exclusive color Arrowhead Lake or a splash of Amazon jungle to your living room. Bring a cool breeze to your bathroom with sea glass, or accent your bedroom with sunrise-inspired colors like coral cloud and dark crimson. Let your creativity bloom this spring with Bare Premium Plus paint starting at just $28.98 a gallon at The Home Depot. How doers get more done.